Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As the second quarter of 2023 rolls in, we check in with Fidelity's Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer. Urian sets the stage for the second quarter and unpacks the latest market action. He reviews the first quarter, pointing out that Bitcoin was the big outlier. But Urian also says that large-cap U.S. growth also saw big jumps at 14%. European stocks were also up, making it a busy quarter in terms of the dispersion of returns. Urian also breaks down the banking crisis. He says the Fed has been in a major tightening campaign in the last year. As things tighten, something tends to break eventually. And this time around, it was Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Since the financial crisis, the banks have been in pretty good shape, but the one thing they never got stress-tested for is buying the safest assets available, treasuries. However, Urian says the fall of these banks are not a systemic event. Urian also comments on the earnings front and where we go from here. He says the market has had a few good weeks, but it's been mostly driven by FANG stocks and mega-cap growers. He comments that the market has been in a range since last June. He still believes 2023 will be a year that will frustrate both bulls and bears alike. Urian also discusses OPEC's recent oil production cuts and how that will affect inflation, and he also gives his outlook on the 60-40 at this point in time. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on April 3rd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I wonder if we can sort of begin with the, the second quarter is here. How do you sort of take a breath and um, tell us where we're going? What do you begin with? Yeah, so um, uh, let's pull up slide one. And that slide he's referring to is year-to-date performance tweeted by Yurian on April 3rd. I, I feel like I was just updating the month and data, you know, yesterday. And, and here we are in April already. So it, time really is is flying and so first quarter of the year is in the bag and uh, this is how things are stacking up so um, obviously bitcoin a big outlier on the upside up 72 percent but really the big story i think is large cap u.s growth up 14 percent and european stocks up 11 percent uh, so europe has been Kind of the stealthy um, leader here um, after after the the, the 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 Fang stocks and you know and at the bottom small cap value that obviously has to do with uh, strains in the smaller regional banking system and we can certainly talk about about that and so you know kind of a barbell of you know down seven for commodities to plus seventy two for Bitcoin so certainly uh, a very busy quarter in terms of the dispersion of returns. 
So, so let's go to the banking crisis that, you know, to some extent, investors have, have perhaps digested a little bit. I mean, there's still lots of concerns. Um, what, what do you want to share with us at this point that, that can kind of help people, again, either put it in a box or keep it in the forefront? In a way, it's always the same story, but with different players, right? We know that when the Fed is in a major tightening campaign, as it obviously has been for the last year, that eventually something tends to break. Uh, you know, it was subprime in 07, it was Orange County, California in 1994, uh, emerging markets, you know, in previous cycles. So we, we know that something will break, but we don't know what or when. And oftentimes it's kind of invisible until the selling starts. And then we're like, ah, okay, so that's what happened. Um, and so obviously this time around, it was Silicon Valley Bank and then Signature Bank and then some stresses in First Republic Bank. And the irony is, is that since the financial crisis, of course, the banks have been generally in really good shape and they've been stress tested to death on credit quality issues. You know, how many loans are you making with your capital? What kind of loans are they? You will have to have certain, you know, SLR supplementary leverage ratios. And so the banks have been squeaky clean um, but the one thing they never got stress tested for, which is kind of amazing, is um, buying the safest assets available, treasuries, and then being upside down on them and having that impair your capital. And that, of course, is what happened with SIVB. Um, and um, and you know, and and it's just not the it's not it's not just the commercial banks, the Fed itself is sitting on a $1.1 trillion unrealized loss on its investment portfolio, which of course was the product of quantitative easing. Now the Fed- now, Does Fed that really never... matter? I mean, is that, or is it just sort of, I mean, we sort of think maybe it, that doesn't matter, but- Yeah, no, there are all, I mean, the, the Fed will never have to realize those losses unless it sells the securities, which it probably won't do. And that kind of is instructive in telling you that quantitative tightening, which of course the Fed has been doing for over a, for about a year now, um, it's going to have its limits because if the Fed can't really sell the securities, all it can do is let them roll off. And there are limits anyway to how small the Fed can get its balance sheet back because the smaller banks are going to run out of reserves, uh, which are of course generated through QE. So there were already limits to what the Fed can do. So it's not a, a, a an actual plumbing issue for the Fed. It is for the commercial banks, of course, because what happened with SIVB is very unique situation, right? So one of the points I would like to make is that this is not a systemic event in my in my view, at least. The 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 quality of the loans are good. Obviously, we have an asset liability mismatch in some banks, not all banks. Um, and so what happened in this particular case is they had massive deposit growth because it came from venture capital funds and, you know, VC was booming because of the easy money days, you know, the meme stocks, that was all kind of related. And these companies tend to, you know, operate at a, at a negative cash flow because they're startups. And as those companies needed their money back to pay, you know, to to uh, pay for their payroll, et cetera, they were not being replaced by new ones because the easy money era is over. And then all of a sudden, that bank had to, you know, sell some assets, uh, incurred, you know, capital ratios, and then had to do a capital raise, which, by all accounts, was kind of botched a little bit. And that 
caused a run on the bank, basically. Now, uh, when you look at SIVB, it really is an outlier. There's a couple of other players that maybe are over their skis on, on, on having bought too many treasuries at very low yields. But it is ironic, though, that the fact that these losses are occurring is the byproduct of the very financial repression that you and I have talked about for the last three years, right? The Fed pushed rates too low. Uh, it pushed real rates down to unsustainably negative levels. Uh, and banks, you know, got all the deposits in. Actually, we slide 11 kind of shows you that. And the next chart, the Fed cycle, was tweeted on April 5th. You know, those excess reserves that the Fed was creating went into the banks as reserves that translated into deposits. And those deposits were then invested in long-term, long-dated bonds. And so this is actually a, a problem that the Fed itself created, not, not intentionally, of course, but here you see that pink line is the, the change in bank deposits since the beginning of the pandemic three years ago. And you can see, uh, you know, five trillion almost of, of deposits and reserves and that's now in reverse. So um, I, I don't think this is a systemic crisis. Uh, it has to do with some plumbing, you know, available for sale versus hold to maturity. And the Fed, of course, as we know, um, and we can pull up by 10. The next slide, the Fed assets, was tweeted on April 4th. The Fed, of course, is being the lender of last resort, which, of course, is the Fed's job, right? And so here's the Fed's balance sheet. The gray part is are the is the system open market account, so that's where the QE goes. So these are open-ended asset purchases, and you can see a massive growth since COVID. The pink bars um, are loans, um, and they can be different things at different times. But currently, those loans are via the bank term funding program, the BTFP, um, and you can see that the loans went up by about 400 billion uh, since this banking uh, crack started to uh, appear. Um, and it actually is coming down slightly as of last week. So people would like to think that the QE era is back in, in play and I don't see it that way. I don't think that collateralized loans at a 5% interest rates are the same as open-ended asset purchases. So I don't think this is QE. I don't think this is the start of a Fed easing cycle necessarily. Um, and in a way, and of course, you know, you're, you're close to this, in a way, I think that this um, is in a way some, somewhat of a replay of what the Bank of England experienced last fall. Remember the whole, we talk, used to talk about that about six months ago when the Liz Trust government in the UK had a very ambitious fiscal plan and then the UK guilt market, the, 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 the government securities in the UK um, had a tantrum and they said not so fast. And then the Bank of England had to step in and buy the gilts um, and made sure everyone knew it was a temporary liquidity operation and not the restart of QE. And it turns out that the Bank of England was correct. It was a temporary program. The, the, bank, the BOE kept raising rates, kept shrinking the balance sheet after that. So my sense is that if SIVB is not a systemic, not the first dom domino to fall in a systemic you know, bank run type of situation, that uh, the Fed's uh, uh, path is not going to be deterred too much. And in a way, the Fed is trying to thread the needle here uh, by saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to keep our eye on inflation, um, and we see what happened uh, to oil prices now with the OPEC uh, 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 production cut 
So inflation is improving, but it's still uh, a, a sticky problem. The core PCE what came out last week. That is the Fed's favorite inflation measure. Uh, and it's down to 4.6, which is good, but it's still 4.6, twice what the Fed would like it to be. And so the market is saying the Fed is going to basically, the Fed is done raising rates and it's going to start easing pretty soon um, and going all the way down back below 3%. And I don't think the Fed is going to do that, at least not as quickly. So I think the Fed is going to uh, maintain a hawkish view on the basis of inflation still being well above its target, while at the same time providing liquidity to basically anyone who needs it. Um, and I think that's the, the kind of the two-tiered approach that I think the Fed is going to stick with in much the same way that the Bank of England did six months ago. That question mark is, is this the end of fiscal on some level? And, you know, what what sort of what that leaves central banks with. There's such a, a, a big balance discussion there. All the questions coming in, or a number of them coming in, are about OPEC, uh, unsurprisingly. So what does OPEC mean for inflation? Top line for sure, but then what? So, so oil prices, you know, WTI is up 6% today at $80. Um, obviously, this throws a wrench into the inflation narrative that the Fed would like to see. Now, the Fed does look at core inflation, uh, primarily the core PCE. And like I said, that was released last week. It's down to 4.6%, which is certainly better than where the CPI is, which is still around 6% or so, certainly down from 9% a year ago, but still way, way too high. And so the headline numbers are going to obviously stay higher because of this. Uh, but I think the Fed would see through this. I mean, obviously, uh, the Fed is not going to hike rates because oil prices are going up because oil prices are already kind of a, a tax. And if anything, they would cause inflation to come down in the long term. So I, I don't think it's going to sway the Fed necessarily. But, you know, the Fed, I think, is very intent on maintaining its hard fought credibility as an inflation fighter. I mean, the Fed has earned its wings in that in that regard. It, it didn't back in the 70s, but it corrected that with in the with the Paul Volcker era. Um, and so I think the Fed is going to uh, remain hawkish until really until inflation is much, much closer to its its target. And then I think, you know, we do have the debt ceiling that hasn't gone away. That's still coming soon. And, you know, we have obviously a very you know, toxic political environment, and maybe toxic is overstating it, but we certainly have a divisive political uh, environment in Washington here. Um, you just have to look at the headlines. And so nobody really knows how the debt ceiling is going to play out and whether it really will be a fiscal cliff. And so in addition to the Fed wanting to obviously preserve its credibility as an inflation fighter, um, you know, the, the, these headlines of the Fed publishing its financial statement and showing a trillion dollar unrealized loss probably don't doesn't help the cause either, especially where the Fed itself created this problem with overly easy money, at least in hindsight. That's kind of, I think, what the take is. So I think the Fed is is very aware of its reputation, its credibility, and certainly the oil uh, developments here are not helping on that they're not helping them. Does it does it interrupt the Europe trade? Does it become a, a Brent versus WTI question? Does it does it sort of separate the story again from uh, regionally? Um, that's a good question. Let me let's pull up slide eight. 
and that chart, the global earnings cycle, was tweeted on April 4th. Europe has been kind of the stealth leader here the year to date, and obviously um, we got very lucky in Europe in that the winter was so mild because remember a year ago, you know, natural gas, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, uh, and if that was going to be a cold winter on top of the the energy crisis in Europe, it would have been it could have been uh, really devastating. So natural gas is still down there, right? So this is an oil issue with OPEC, not a natural gas issue. It's a totally different market. So I I think that um, the the OPEC cuts are not going to be that disruptive to uh, to Europe because I think the sensitivity is more to natural gas. But I, I wanted to show this chart, uh, there's a lot of squiggles here, but this is the global earnings cycle. So this is the, the, the uh, what we call a Z-score, so a detrended earnings line for all major regions in the world. You see the outlier Russia there at the bottom in gray, um, and then Eastern Europe above that, and on the top you see Mexico, Latin America, very, very strong. But look at Europe, that blue line. Uh, European earnings are doing really well, uh, and actually a lot better than the US, which where the numbers are still coming down. So we know uh, from studying history that the relative performance of different countries or regions ultimately is less about the valuation difference, although that can be compelling as it is right now, but it's ultimately about relative earnings. And so what we see here is a a divergence between U.S. earnings and the rest of the world, and especially Europe. So I think Europe has some some tailwinds on on that on that front, which I think is 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 a good story. That's related to China. Yeah, it's related to a, a couple of different things. Obviously, China is ramping up in a in a big way, and there are European companies that obviously benefit from that: luxury good, you know, tourism, etc. Uh, the numbers I've seen in terms of Chinese air travel is that it, it it's like a hockey stick, you know, to use a, a favorite Canadian term, um, in terms of how quickly that recovered from the depths of nobody going anywhere to everyone being everywhere. And I think uh, the European market probably benefits from that more so than than many other markets, other than the EM markets themselves, of course. It's, it's so fascinating. Um, Tell us a little bit about what is and isn't range bound, going back to sort of the earnings story and, and where we go from here to an extent on the earnings front. And then perhaps we can... uh, you know, the market has had a good bid the last few weeks, mostly driven by the FANG stocks, the, the mega cap growers. So if you look at uh, the market on an equal weighted basis or you look at small cap stocks, market doesn't look that great. It's really range bound. But if you look at the cap weighted index, uh, the market's holding in pretty nicely, but uh, just because we've had this conversation, you know, almost every week for the last three years, um, it's worth just stepping back and remembering that the market basically has been in a range since last June, right? June was that first um, momentum bottom uh, of the bear market, down 20, 23-25%, and then we had a rally, and then it fell again uh, and made a second bottom in October, down 28%, on an intraday basis or 25 on this chart, which is a close, a close only basis. And, and the market has rebounded since then, but really the market's gone nowhere for nine months. And that's basically what we've been talking about saying, you know, people like to think in terms of binary, right? Bullish or bearish, up or down. 
sometimes it's neither. And uh, my outlook has been for a while now that 2023 would be a year that would frustrate bulls and bears alike. And I think that's been, you know, reasonably accurate so far. And so, but, you know, nine months of sideways, you know, markets don't go sideways forever. So at some point, the, 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 the trend is going to declare itself either by starting a new cyclical bull market uh, or by finally having that that kind of uh, that washout bottom that comes on negative earnings revisions and, and things like that. And I don't have an answer right now. I wish I did. But it's worth kind of summarizing. I think what it comes down to is the juxtaposition of the earnings cycle versus uh, price or and said another way versus the PE, right? So uh, uh, valuations or the market prices are driven by two things, cash flows or earnings and interest rates or the overall liquidity environment, right? So this is a classic DCF approach, discounted cash flow. You basically are calculating the present value of future earnings and that present value is the fair value in the market. That's the PE that the market should be trading at. And what we, of course, have had was in 2021 was a peak in earnings growth at plus 50%, very strong earnings growth after COVID. And then in 2022, that 50% went to basically, you know, five or 8% is expected to go down maybe two to 5% this year. I could see them going down 10% this year. But the market is often ahead of this, right? So the market's always discounting the future and the market tends to start to recover well before earnings recover. And we saw this in 2020. I'm sure you remember that the market was going up and, and it didn't make any sense because the world was still falling apart around us. But that's right, because and that's because the market discounts the future, not always correctly, but it does always discount the future. So it's normal for the market for price to bottom two quarters or so before earnings do. Uh, but the only way the market can really look through the earnings abyss or the earnings valley um, is by uh, getting the promise of easier liquidity conditions. And of course, that comes from the Fed. So when the Fed pivots, uh, even though earnings are still falling, and of course, usually the Fed pivots because earnings are falling, because that's a an illustration of the economy faltering, then the market can kind of start to, to keep an eye on the liquidity environment as, as a leading indicator for things getting better down the road. And that's why the Fed is such an important player here, because I think we can have a sense and, and we can pull up slide 15. And that slide, earnings estimates progression, was tweeted on April 5th. We can have a sense that you know earnings have actually held up pretty well. Um, margins are down and earnings are down, certainly in real terms, because of course inflation is where it is. But if you look at revenues per share, those are still at all time highs. And so the, the earnings side has held up better than I think a lot of us expected, uh, but they are coming down and I think they'll continue to come down this year. We're down 2% 2 per, 2 on our year over year basis right now. But the market can look past that as long as there's a sense that the Fed is going to ease up financial conditions. And that's why this really does come down to the Fed. And my sense is that the Fed is probably closer to being done than they were before the banking headlines. That usually um, when the Fed has hiked for the last time, and we don't know if it's the last time the Fed 
might do one more in May. But I think the general sense is that the Fed's pretty close to being done here. And historically speaking, when the Fed is done tightening, usually the first easing doesn't come, uh, you know, comes fairly quickly. Not always, but it tends to come quickly. So we we might be actually at the point where the Fed in the coming three to six months could be certainly done and maybe even starting to give back some of those rate hikes. But that will come down to the inflation data, of course, uh, which in the short term uh, are going to be skewed by the by the oil price going up. So fascinating to look at. Uh, let's spend a few minutes, if you don't mind, on currency. There's actually a question about the the BRICS currencies, actually, and where they're going, but a number of questions on Bitcoin as well. And um, I'll, I'll just read a couple of them out to you. Um, so your latest commentary on Bitcoin and also taking a look at why Bitcoin was up you know, over 70% uh, for the quarter. Where is it going ultimately? I mean, was that just a reaction to the banking crisis? And if that is it, then does it go back down? How do you see Bitcoin going forward? So I think we can weave the Bitcoin narrative into gold, into the dollar, uh, into the Fed's balance sheet, and where monetary policy might go, they're all they're all related, right? So don't remember, don't forget, gold is trading at two thousand and six U.S. dollars right, right now, wow. uh, and so it's part of the same story. So for Bitcoin, part of the story is that you know we had a massive crypto winter where literally anything that could go wrong, everything that could go wrong went wrong, and at the end of the day, there were so many dead bodies, you know, washing ashore. FTX, Signature, you know, you you name it, and Bitcoin still standing, and it's at twenty eight thousand. And so, if Bitcoin can survive that kind of winter, I think the sense is, and that is my sense as well, if it can survive that, it can survive anything. Uh, and it shows that there really is something there. But you know, the problem with crypto in general, including Bitcoin is that you know you have the blockchain right and the the, the technological promise there uh is i think unquestionable mm -hmm. there's obviously really something big there but the problem with crypto is that all these blockchains are uh, associated with tokens right when we had the internet the dot-com era the the tokens were the dot-com stocks right that you would buy and then they went down 90 percent but the internet was the internet and, and it delivered on all the promises and, and then some. And so the blockchain is the internet and then the tokens are the dot-com stocks of, of 23 years ago. And my sense is that with Bitcoin being, I, you know, the, no pun intended, but the gold standard of crypto, um, that the fact that it's still standing and that it is truly decentralized, it, it is likely more a commodity than a security, these are all attributes that are in its favor. Um, and my sense is that there is another wave coming and that Apple, uh, sorry, and that Bitcoin is kind of like the Apple of the dot-com era, right? And, and I don't have the chart uh, with me today, but I can, I can bring it uh, next week. But what happened during the dot-com boom and, and, uh, and bubble was that you had like the pets.com type stocks, the MySpaces and things like that. And they went up you know, to astronomical levels and then fell 90% from their highs. Apple went way up. Everything got caught up in that, in that whole scene. Um, and then Apple went down, but it only went down maybe 50%. And then it reversed, took all the market share and you know, has become the Apple that it is today. 
And I think Bitcoin is kind of doing the same thing. It's taking market share, it, you know, in, in some cases by default because some of its competitors are no longer around. But I think app, uh, uh, Bitcoin is being seen as kind of, you know, the blue chip of the crypto space. And now that all of this winter stuff has been kind of washed away, all the excesses, all the fraud um, has been kind of been exposed. Uh, Bitcoin is left standing as kind of a pure asset. And now on top of that, we have a change in the macro narrative as well, right? Because the macro narrative helps either speed up the adoption curve or slow it down, right? All, all you know, at the end of the day, this is all about the network, uh, the growth in the network curve, the adoption curve. And of course, in 2020, the macro was wildly bullish for gold and crypto because of monetary policy, negative real rates, financial repression, uh, QE, all of that stuff. That went into reverse and became a very negative macro catalyst. And now there's a sense that that tide is starting to turn again. So you're starting to see things come together in a way that they haven't for a couple of years. Very quickly, 30 seconds. Um... How does the 60-40 look right now? Still okay for bonds to get in? I, I, I think it looks good. I think um, if we do get a recession, which I think is 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 likely, right? Because even if the, the SIVB banking run is not the start of a systemic problem, it's still going to lead to a credit crunch because banks are going to need to fight for their deposits, meaning they have to pay higher rates, which means lower net interest margins, which means fewer loans. So I do think a credit crunch is now the catalyst that kind of will bring to life the yield curve inversion that we've been talking about for months. And so we could very well see a recession and the 40 of that 60-40, I think will, you know, is proving yet again to be the anchor. It certainly wasn't last year, but I think it's certainly doing it again this year. Yuri and Timur, it's great to see you. And thank you so much for joining us and setting us straight on our course into the week of trade ahead. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.